Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This episode of The Commons is sponsored by New College Franklin. At New College Franklin, students and professors together find their place in an educational tradition that stretches back for ages, returning to tried and true educational practices and texts that have been discarded for too long. Through a robust exploration of the great books and the classical seven liberal arts in an environment of rich conversation, shared life, and spiritual discipleship, new college students see how they fit in the unfolding story of redemption. Take the next step in your education and join the conversation in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee. Come for a preview weekend or schedule a visit at your convenience and continue building on the educational foundation you've started. You can learn more at www.newcollegefranklin.org. That's newcollegefranklin.org. And now, The Commons with Brian Phillips. Hello again. Welcome back to The Commons, part of the Searcy Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brian Phillips. Uh, This is episode five in season two of The Commons, and today I'm joined by a good friend of the Searcy Institute, uh, David Hicks, author of Norms and Nobility, a wonderful book on education. But today we're talking about a mutual love that uh, David Hicks and I share, and that is uh, St. Benedict and in particular, the rule of St. Benedict. So we're discussing uh, this very influential founder of Western monasticism uh, and the influence of his writings. So thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoy the show. And here begins my conversation with David Hicks. All right. Well, David Hicks, thank you for joining me today. It's good to have you with us. It's good to be here, especially the season of the year full of Thanksgiving. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and today we have uh, another uh, privilege to be thankful for. We get to uh, talk a bit about uh, a shared love that, that you and I both have uh, for um, St. Benedict and the rule of St. Benedict. So um, looking forward to this. So now uh, the rule of St. Benedict um, is a, it's a short work and it's one that um, 
I know you come back to over and over again, and and I've had the same experience over uh, the last several years of coming back to that work. Um, so I want us to spend a good bit of time, as much as time as we can, talking about the rule of Saint Benedict. But before we get to his rule, let's let's talk about uh, Benedict's earlier life. Um, uh, one of the first experiences that I'm aware of is when he went away to Rome for schooling. Um, had a very strong reaction to life in the city. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about how Rome, how did Rome suit young Benedict, and and how did that time there uh, shape his life later on? Well, and, well, as you probably know, Brian, uh, really all we know about Benedict is his life comes from the work by Gregory the Great. Who never knew him, but was was the great pope who lived after him, and uh, and that work is an interesting work. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at it, but it's not really. Uh, it's hard to tell how much of it is factually accurate and how much of it is uh, more of a literary creation that Gregory is writing to illustrate. Um, what the life of a saint should look like. But anyway, so what we know of his early life is that time that he supposedly spent in Rome, where he had a very strong reaction against the, you know, the manifest evils and violence and craziness of the city. Of course, you know, he, I mean, he lived during the reign of the Ostrogoth, right? Uh, Theodoric, mm-hmm. who was, uh, actually as those barbarian Kings went, he was probably, one of the best, if not the best, of the barbaric kings of Rome, uh, and governed through a guy named Cassiodorus, who was his principal, sort of his prime minister, if you like. And Cassiodorus, as you know, founded his own monastery after he left uh, Theodoric's service. So he was surrounded by good good men and was, I think, trying to be a good ruler of the Italians, although the Goths held the Italians in contempt. But young Benedict saw, um, you know, just the excesses of Rome. Like, like if you, are you familiar with Kazantzakis' biography of Saint Francis? It's the same. It's the same story in a lot of respects. Saint Francis, who is a young man, goes to Rome thinking he's going to find a holy city, thinking he's going to Jerusalem, and still, and still, instead, he finds brothels and filth and sacrilege and uh paganism and broth uh, uh, uh violence and he's so repulsed by it that of course he leaves rome to escape um a very sinful place so i think possibly you know to go to your question and of course we're all speculating now but that right. has been what what shaped in young benedict this fervent desire to try to create a community that really did live out the gospel and really did uh, manifest the or show the promise that the gospel, what the, uh, try to live out the teachings of Jesus in a way that uh, made manifest the wisdom of those teachings and that brought about the salvation of souls. Right. Um, and I think according to the, the same 
that same tradition of, of stories. I, he he left Rome, um, having been quite disappointed with what he found there, of course, as, as you mentioned. Um, and he he went to live in a cave for a while, from from what I've read. Um, and um, this is sort of a story with what I think is a bit of a humorous twist. I, um, in a sense, I feel bad for Benedict. He, he goes to escape the, the paganism of the city and the wickedness of the city. He's just tired of people. Um, uh, I guess a lot of us have been there, right? Um, and so he goes to live in this cave, but uh, the, the strange man living in a cave draws so much attention that people are just flocking to him to, to meet him. And um, eventually, um, a group of monks came and asked him uh, while he's still in that cave to, to be their abbot. Um, and Benedict resisted at first, but eventually he kind of relents and, um, um, and joins them. But that, that also did not go very well. Um, so he goes from Rome, uh, perhaps having these high expectations of what life in Rome would be like, and then goes to live, um, uh, sort of uh, in seclusion for a while and becomes a, an abbot. And that didn't go all that well either, from what I understand. How, how did his first attempt at being an abbot suit Benedict? Um, and then what what did he have to learn from that? Well, you know, again, I think that uh, this tradition, as, as given to us really by Gregory, was in a way a kind of... Uh, he has these various stories about him, which are all, I think, clearly intended to uh, do exactly what you're saying, shape his eventual character and his rule. And one of the things, of course, he, and it's like almost like, uh, you know, Pilgrim who goes through all of these, in, in Bunyan's progress, who goes through all these stages mm-hmm. in order to uh, be, you know, be refined as a soul. So, yes, he... He goes lives in a cave all alone, and that's not uh, that has its own problems. Being a hermit or being mm-hmm. lonely, and so and then these uh, these kind of strange monks, and I think we'll probably get to this the, the, early in the rule where he describes the four kinds of monks. Mm-hmm. These monks are kind of described. These four kinds of monks are in a way described in this story that Gregory tells about Benedict and how he has this experience of all these different kinds of monkish experience or this. So it's not just theoretical for Benedict. He really experiences these types of monastic uh, expression in his world Mm -hmm. and all of it, both and you see it in the rule, all of it, points him in the direction of the Cenobitic community, the, the wisdom of the, you know, Pacomian Cenobitic uh, tradition. And that's what the rule really is all about, is trying to, if, if you read this as a monk or as a prospective monk, it's, it's really the persuasive, if you like, argument for why the Cenobitic life is better than the idiorhythmic or or hermetic life. I mean, hmm. and Benedict is convicted of this. Right. And, and we will get into a, a discussion of those four different types of monks. Um, it, it's interesting because as, um, as we've done several episodes in this season of the commons, 
Um, I talked about uh, St. John Chrysostom and uh, St. Ambrose, and um, now it feels like we're coming back to this uh, this same theme where uh, St. John Chrysostom and St. Ambrose both were were essentially compelled into their their positions as as bishops, um, not necessarily men who were looking for that office. Um, in fact, sometimes even, um, uh, and it's hard to know whether these stories are, you know, apocryphal or, um, factual or whatever, but, um, even sometimes compelled by force or threat of imprisonment, you know, that, that you have to become the bishop. Um, and here's St. Benedict goes off to be by himself and then is compelled to be an abbot. And it goes horribly wrong in a sense of their, um, one of my favorite stories, again, whether factual or not, I still love the story, is uh, where that same group of monks um, who initially commissioned him to be their abbot, he he warned them that he didn't think that he was well-suited for this, and it was after a relatively short time with Benedict as their abbot that they tried to to kill him, I think tried to poison <laughs> his wine. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Um, needless to say, he disbanded that that first monastery uh, that first uh, band of monks but um but but benedict didn't he didn't give up after that first disaster it, it, as you said it it did show him what kinds of men were were out there what kinds of monks there were um but he went on of course to uh to to found to establish i believe it was 12 monasteries with 12 monks each right um and, and it's for that great effort that, that Benedict is referred to as the father of Western monasticism. But, um, and, and you've already alluded to uh, the barbarian rulers and, and a bit of what was going on in Rome. Um, but why was monasticism so important at this particular point in history, uh, at least at, at Benedict's, in Benedict's time? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, monasticism comes from the East, of course. And by the time Benedict comes along, it's probably already at least 200, 250 years old. And so he inherited uh, a very rich tradition, and one that also had very strong opinions that he ended up promulgating and sharing. I mean, if you, you know, the uh, St. Basil, who was a great monastic in the Eastern tradition, um, also, it was a huge champion of communities and, and was actually wrote, uh, was really more strongly, I think, against uh, hermit, hermit, the uh, hermetical or hermetic, the hermitage, uh, uh, the single uh, sort of like St. Anthony man going into the desert to become holy. He wrote powerfully against that kind of, a, of an individual. So... Uh, Benedict inherits all of this, but but I would say that probably in his situation or in the West, the tradition was. Oh, I don't know. I, you know, I'm stepping out. I'm just speculating on this. But in the East, we the the theory is is that monasticism really took off after uh, Christianity became uh, the official religion of the empire after Constantine. Uh, because, of course, that brought into the church uh, suddenly, dramatically, enormous number of pagans who uh, converted uh, for 
a whole range of reasons. But one, of course, reason to convert was so that you could hold an office, so that you could get ahead in society. And, and so the era of the fathers and of the martyrs, where to become a Christian was, I mean, you had to be an all-in, full-in Christian to want to do that, because there, there were no extrinsic rewards for being a Christian in the uh, Roman Empire. Now there were all extrinsic rewards, so people could become Christian for a variety of reasons, not just because they wanted to become a disciple of Christ. The Western Empire, of course, is... A, so monasticism in the East was a desire on the part of people like St. Anthony and uh, those that followed him into the desert to uh, reform the church, if you like, and, and bring about a pure expression, a more honest and authentic expression of Christian, the Christian faith. Whereas in the West, it was often uh, truly an effort to escape uh, a really violent society that was in collapse and to create these uh, um, kind of safe havens, if you like, um, where also not only Christianity, but where culture, I mean, this is where I mentioned Cassiodorus, this is where Cassiodorus came in. His monastery down in Calabria, which was formed around the same time as Benedict, uh, it had a huge, I mean, one of his works of his monks was to preserve the literary tradition of the ancient world. And, uh, mm -hmm preserve that culture. So the the impetus for monasticism in the West, I, I suspect, was quite different from what it was in the East, although it followed in the footsteps of Pacomius and Basil and the others who had sort of paved the way in the East and already had, I mean, you know, we're going to get to the rule. Benedict, uh, modern scholars now believe actually that uh, his rule is very derivative, particularly from a rule called the rule of the master, which preceded it slightly and is three times as long as the rule of Benedict. But that whole opening section, the whole prologue is virtually pulled entirely from the uh, rule of the master. You know, but like, like the icons of this world, like the icons of the ancient world, these are not, there was no, there was nothing thought to be, virtuous about the originality of a monastic rule. Every monastery had its own rules and they borrowed freely from one another in order to create a rule that fit their monastery and that they thought, you know, superior. So, you know, Benedict's rule is pulling from a lot of sources probably. And we know it's pulling from the rule of the master. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, but we love it because of the, the tone of it is so, well, first, because it's concise, easy to read, as you've already pointed out. It's beautifully right. expressed, but also because its tone is much less, um, he leaves a lot more up to the abbot. He, he's much more respectful of the individual differences and vagaries of human nature and the monks. And it, it's a much more loving, compassionate um, gentle kind of rule than mm -hmm. some of the other rules, which are, some of them are really quite severe. And I, I wonder if, um, if, if some of that moderation and gentleness that we find in, uh, the rule of St. Benedict 
I wonder if some of that, and, and again, I'm speculating here, if it, if it rises from the early struggles that he noticed when he attempted to be an abbot that first time with that yeah. group of monks that commissioned him from the cave, um, perhaps that was sort of a, a wake up call for him. And, um, I mean, I guess it's possible that they tried to kill him because he was too severe, you know, um, um, he was a, a, a hard abbot perhaps that first time around. I, I don't know, but, um, that's a good, he, well, that, he does. Yeah. That's, that's a good insight. I, I, I like that thought that maybe they, they taught him a little bit about the difficulty of ruling human nature. <laughs> um, maybe I, I could be completely wrong, uh, as far as how it happened, but it's, uh, it's an interesting possibility, but I've always appreciated that in reading through his rule, uh, where even, even the jobs, um, that have to be done in a certain monastery, he, he kind of, he gives advice to the abbot that, you know, certain jobs, this one be, might be good for those who are, um, uh, physically not as strong or someone who's older or someone who is having trouble adjusting to monastery life and so on. So yeah, there's, there's a great deal of, um, gentleness to the rule. Yeah. There is a lot of flexibility granted the abbot. I mean, the abbot, of course, his, uh, on the other hand, I mean, you, I, I totally agree with what you're saying, Brian, but on the other hand, you could say that the rule also reflects the fact that, uh, the, the abbot had to rule. I mean, everything was referred to the abbot. And, right. the, and that the whole effort of the monastery is just, is to kill, annihilate, if you like, willfulness, individualism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, look at the three cardinal virtues of the monastery. You know, their obedience first, mm-hmm. silence and humility. Well, mm-hmm. if you look at those three, they're all really have to do with humility, but he puts obedience first, obedience to whom? To the abbot. Why? Because mm-hmm. the abbot stands in place of Christ. And when the mm-hmm. abbot says, do this, you hear it as if Christ is saying to you, do this. So there's also that experience, I think, taught him that, uh, you know, and the whole issue of how you become inducted. Remember, you know, you have spent a few days in the guest house. You move into the novitiate after six months, or, you know, I'm probably misremembering this, but, you know, the whole rule is read through to you. And you, if you agree to it, then you're allowed to stay for, you know, three more months. Then it's all read all over again to you. And if you still agree to it, you're allowed to stay another you know, six months or something. And then the final time it's read all through to you and you absolutely agree to it. You sign the parchment that says you commit yourself to the rule. And then after that, you can no longer leave the monastery. You basically sign yourself over. Yeah. Because that's another of the, the pillars of the monastic life was stability, right? That they had to stay put. Um, Back to your four monks question, right? Yeah. Uh, right. Um, and that would, that would, uh, that would take on particular significance with each rereading because you're getting to know who this abbot is, right? Good point. So Absolutely. you're hearing, you're hearing the rule read again and you're going, wait a minute. Okay. This guy has all of that authority. So, um, given that so much was left to the abbot, it would give the initiates a, a lot to think about. Um, given that they would be in that monastery, in that monastic community for the rest of their lives. 
Absolutely. If you think about the way monasteries, you know, most of them that we know about came into being, it was because of the, uh, because a group of men, usually young men, were attracted to an older man who had great spiritual wisdom and Mm -hmm. power. And and they basically became his, uh, his apprentices. I mean, they wanted to learn the spiritual life from someone who had succeeded in their eyes in, in leading the spiritual life. So for, for a monastery starting out, it wasn't as if it was going to be that, you know, they were there because they wanted to obey the starets or the spiritual father or leader. And, uh, but once they're established, you know, how do you keep that? How do you keep that relationship moving forward as abbots die and new abbots take their place? And as the monastery grows, well, you need, you know, you need a rule. And, uh... Right, and and it even kind of outgrew. Um, uh, well, in a sense, Benedict kind of. Um, I know Saint Francis uh, when he wrote his rule by the end of his life recognized that his rule really wasn't significant for how large the Franciscan order had become. But uh, Benedict kind of hint hints at this as well, um, or or it could be part of what he meant at the end of the rule, he acknowledges that everything he set down is for beginners, which, um, I I remember reading this the first time and being struck by, um, the, the depth of wisdom and discipline, um, that it required, uh, and and then at the end, <laughs> him saying, you know, this little rule that we've written for beginners, and I thought, oh boy, you know, um, that's really saying a lot. There's a lot more here than it doesn't feel like a beginner's manual. Um, yeah, but but you're you're right. I mean, he well, the synodic life is a, it's a school for beginners, as he as he, as he described it, or it's mm-hmm. a school for you know. I think in his mind, his idea was that. It's a school in the sense that you have to go through this school to learn the spiritual life and to be then able to go out alone into the wilderness or to the mountaintop. And at that point, you're spiritually in his mind. And very few people achieve this, but the great saints have achieved this in his mind. And they can be trusted to go alone and be led directly by the Spirit of God. They don't need an abbot. They don't need all of those um, lessons that the school has to teach them. They've learned those lessons, and they've graduated, and now now they're ready to go on and achieve theosis, you know, achieve oneness with God in a really exalted state. Uh, but, of course, he, 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 like Basil, would say, those who try to do this before going to school or who think they have you know, could just go out in the wilderness and, and, and do this on their own are fooling themselves. They're just become a law unto themselves. And that's not in the, in, in this tradition's view, that is not the way to achieve, you know, theosis or nearness to God. Mm-hmm. Now, um, lately, uh, Benedict has has come back into more popular conversation, so to speak. Um, a lot of people have been discussing um, 
the rule of St. Benedict and his monasteries as it relates to our current culture. Um, do you think that, and, and I think most of those arguments have come from people who are looking at our cultural climate and, and saying, well, we need to, we need to consider doing what Benedict did kind of withdrawing and creating these communities, um, uh, for, for believers. Um, do you think that there are parallels between our current situation and Benedict's? In other words, do you think that that's a good use of, um, of St. Benedict and his rule given our current, our, uh, current situation? Um, it's a really good question, but a complicated one because I think, uh, I think it's we can't under we can't overestimate the nature of the challenge of applying Benedictine ideas to to us in the modern world. I mean, um, for example, in the in the rule of Benedict, you know, as we've discussed individually, individuality is acknowledged. We, he, you know, he's very clear about the differences between the individual, but it is not so much uh, celebrated as viewed as problematic. And uh, because you know, for him, this state of individual individuality or individuation, you know, leads to isolation, alienation, and uh, prevents us from really moving toward God, and and t- and it tends to turn us toward the self rather than toward Christ. Mm-hmm. And this, of course, is anathema to a. To, to a monastic. I mean, for them, I mean, to repent for a monastic as for all of us is to turn away from ourselves and to Christ. But if we live in a culture that celebrates, you know, individualism and free choice and rights and, and, uh, has a victim's consciousness and is all about political empowerment. And, and it's now even become about self-making and self-identification. I mean, this is the antithesis of, um, what monasticism is all about. So I can see why moderns, modern writers, you know, like Rod Dreyer and others are sort of reaching out toward this and saying, we need to go in this direction, but we shouldn't over uh, underestimate, pardon me, the, the difficulty of getting f- from where we are to where this is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I mean, it was a lot easier, I think, um, I mean, this whole monastic idea resonates a lot better with the classical tradition that's informed by, because that is informed by the excesses of individuality, you know, hubris, which we've all heard of, and say the religions of Dionysus, uh, and uh, much more than, say, uh, the poetry of the Romantics or the personal salvation of the Reformation, which we, Mm -hmm. we come after all that. And again, that's an it's a celebration and a empowerment of the self. I'm not even going to Nietzsche and all of that. So anyway, it's, it's a great, it, we can look at it and admire it, but I think it's uh, extremely difficult for us to, um, to apply it to the change conditions of our times. Mm-hmm. Uh, because our mind is in a different place. Our whole mental framework is, it's no longer a classical one. And by, and, and 
you know, we, we can move on from this, but I'm thinking too that this was what makes it a great thing for you guys to study and for the students to look at or read in, in, in a classical Christian school because they can then come to maybe to some extent appreciate how much how much more accessible this kind of uh, path to to God is to a classical minded person than it is to a modern person. Mm-hmm. I don't know, does that make sense? Does that make sense? It, it does. It does. I, I was reading um, a bit from a a book by uh, Timothy Cardong, who's um, I believe he's an abbot at a Benedictine monastery. Um, and he wrote sort of a commentary on the rule of Benedict. And one of the things that he observed almost in a, a side comment, it seemed was that, uh, he, he was talking about the different, um, um, steps that an abbot would go through in a case that might lead to say excommunication of, of a monk, which obviously is a very serious matter, but, um, he just expressed, uh, Cardong did expressed the, um, the trouble that, uh, monasteries face with this now because of, um, monks coming in who have grown up in this culture of celebrated individualism and how at times it seems that, um, they can excommunicate themselves. Um, you know, that it doesn't even have to be done as an act of discipline that, that getting them to invest in, um, the monastic community and life, um, in the way that Benedict would have intended is hard enough as it is. So the threat of excommunication, um, is not, not nearly what it once was. It's kind of like, um, you know, when a student now, um, hears that Socrates chose the poison rather than exile, that seems so strange. Um, because the idea that, their place, their city, their community meant that much is, is just very foreign to our ears now. Yeah. Good, um, good analogy. I think you're right. I mean, because now, now there are so many other cities that you could go to and have a good life. Right. 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 So, um, yeah. Now let's, let's jump into, um, the rule itself. Um, We'll start with a, a big general question. I've heard you say this at Circe conferences before, and um, I, I agree with you that the, the rule is beneficial to just about everyone, not just monks and nuns. Um, I've heard you say that before, so let me let me give you a chance to elaborate here. Um, why do you think that is? Why is the rule so beneficial and such an important work, even even to those not choosing a monastic life? Well, to me, it... And this, you, you referred to Socrates. Socrates, uh, you know, would say the ideal is important, even if it's unachievable. I mean, because it holds out to us this this goal toward which we can move, even though you know we know that we we may never reach it, or maybe it is unachievable. But it still gives us a direction. It's like you know celestial navigation right it's the star by which we can we can guide our our ship other than just letting it be blown around and i think the rule does that to to some extent i mean just like the epistles do that i mean all wisdom in a way literature does that and i regard the rule as just a a really wonderful example of the wisdom literature that we should all be studying and reading constantly uh 
So in that sense, and it also it gives us an illustration, it's a practical, it, it, it's a very, uh, not just an intelligent individual and saintly individual, but a, but a whole saintly tradition of how to apply the teachings of Christ to very specific rules of life and how you live. So it gives us an example of how to do that, which we, which we really need. Uh, and, you know, when you talk about those early monkish experiences that he had, I mean, what he's finding is that these people who, you know, there's three, two or three monks who are off in, in the wilderness. Well, why do they reject him? Why do they even try to kill him? The most unchristlike thing they could conceivably do. It's because they're just, they're just worldly people living out in the woods, uh, thinking that they're doing, uh, you know, thinking that they're being holy or thinking that they're they're being good Christians, when in fact they're being just the opposite. Well, what the rule gives us is uh, a real proven uh, ruler, if you like, measured to hold up against ourselves and to, and to show us how what poor Christians were being, how we lack humility, how we're not willing to obey, we're not willing to exercise good zeal with regard to our brothers and sisters. We're not in a competition with them to see who can be last. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The rule has all those, those great sort of, uh, it holds up a mirror to us and shows us how, how deficient we are and therefore gives us an impetus, you know, to repent, to turn away from ourselves constantly and return to Christ. And, uh, that's, it's one thing to say to, especially young people, to all of us, theoretically, this is what we should be doing. But it's it's much more powerful as if as when as when if you're in a if you're in a tradition that insists upon making a confession in front of a, a priest or a spiritual elder or father. The beauty of that is that the, the good confessor will uh, point out very specific ways in which. You are, you're not being honest with yourself. You're not being honest with God. You're not really telling the truth about your selfishness, your, your greed, your lust, those, those things that are, you know, really holding your, you down in your spiritual life. And, the, and what the rule does is it gives you some really hard things to hold up to yourself and say, am I really doing these things? Uh, mm -hmm. And if not, I am falling short of the glory of God. I'm not doing what Jesus told me to do. And, and therefore, I can't expect to have the rewards, the spiritual rewards that come from being a true disciple of Christ. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the rule is, in that sense, um, very difficult because it, it causes us to ask all those questions that we sometimes don't want to ask. Right. So, um, yeah. in a sense, <laughs> in a sense, the reasons why we should read the rule are often the reasons why we don't really want to, um, as, as a lot of, um, acts of spiritual discipline are that way, right? They're almost too revealing for our own comfort, um, which is why we need them. Well, um, and I would say too, because I'm sure many Protestants would say, well, why do I read the rule? Well, I would say for the same reason you read the epistles of St. Paul. I mean, he's basically writing the rules for the early churches, right? And a lot of people, especially in a lot of the modern churches, there are parts of the epistles they just can't read. 
because it's too it's either not politically correct or it's too it's too painful to read it and i think as christians our view ought to be we need to read those passages even more frequently right and even the ones that challenge us personally uh, it's important that we be challenged that way otherwise we have really we can find nothing to repent and if we can't re- and if we have nothing to repent then of course the the forgiveness that Christ offers us uh through his death and and through his eucharist it's meaningless we don't need it i mean the whole our whole faith just washes out if we aren't willing to face ourselves with complete and brutal honesty and repent of our selfishness. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 that's okay. Um, I, uh, I want to, I want to connect that now with, um, what is the longest chapter I believe in the rule is, um, the chapter on humility. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in that, that chapter that Benedict describes what he calls the steps to humility. And of course there are 12 of them. I think there had to be, right? It's like there were 12 um, monasteries with 12 monks in each monastery. Right, <laughs> right. He couldn't stop at 11. Uh, right. um, and if there was a 13th, he would have had to leave it out. Uh, um, probably. No. <laughs> uh, but but see, why was humility... how cynical we moderns are? <laughs> I know, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was completely unhelpful, wasn't it? Um, why was humility such an important topic for Benedict? I mean, most of the, uh, for those of you who haven't read it before, most of the chapters are very, very short. I mean, you're talking a matter of a, a page or so. Or, or two um, sentences, yeah. Yeah, yeah, some even even shorter. And then suddenly you have this chapter on humility, and he, and he goes on for what comparatively feels like for quite a while. Yeah. Um, so why was humility such an important topic for Benedict and and the monks living under his rule? Well, I think uh, relating it to what we were just talking about, I mean, the the, the core to me of the whole, the first domino of the Christian way of life is repentance. I mean, the first thing that we, when John the Baptist preaches, the first thing we hear in the gospel is he's saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The first words out of Christ's mouth is repent. I mean, that should be a big, a big uh, tip off to us that repentance is where it all begins. And it, unless you are genuinely humble and see yourself as the first among sinners and, and someone who can never really get to the bottom of how desperately wicked they are in their thoughts as well as in their deeds, uh, you can't even put your you can't put your foot on that path, and so I think theologically speaking, repentance is, I mean, humility is what what paves the way or makes repentance possible. So in that sense, it's crucial. But if you think also, then if you go back to life in community, um, you know, back to his three, you know, his three cardinal. What are the three cardinal characteristics of a of a, mo- a monastery? You know, their obedience, silence, and humility. But in fact, and if you read through his twelve steps, obedience, 
uh, to the will of God, obedience to the injunctions of the abbot, those are three, two of his steps. I mean, they're part of humility. Silence the same way. He has a lot to say in the, in the section you're referring to about restraint of the way you speak and keeping silent. Uh, mm-hmm. So really, in a way, both obedience and silence and almost everything else is subsumed under, under humility. If you're genuinely humble, and then he gives very specific, um, you know, what you've, you know this section. I mean, he doesn't want to hear laughter, which is something would be completely contrary to a sort of modern view. Well, where is there joy for us if not laughter? But our laughter uh, is not always an indication, I think, from St. Benedict's view of real joy. Uh, mm-hmm. Speaking gently and wisely to others. Um, you know, the humility and bearing in heart, walking with downcast eyes, even uh, in the Orthodox tradition, of course, uh, we say the Jesus prayer constantly. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I mean, it, it, and that is, you know, the Hesychus said this with their breath. They said it constantly, the whole idea to keep them humble in their minds and always on the threshold of repentance, always repenting. So, I mean, you, I think, you know, go back to those earlier experiences you talked about too. I mean, the, uh, the experience with those, with those recalcitrant uh, fellows who invited him to be their abbot. I mean, what they lacked was humility. I mean, they weren't willing to, uh, to be submissively obedient to their abbot. They, they were willful. Mm-hmm. And willfulness is, back to our discussion about individuality, I mean, willfulness is like, it's like pride, right? It's the root of all evil. It, it lies at the, at the, like a snake coiled at our roots, uh, holding us back, preventing us from advancing in the spiritual life. And the only way you can you know, sort of release that snake or, or, or advance in the, in the, um, in the spiritual life, according to Benedict and, and, you know, really all of those in this monastic wisdom literature tradition is by, is by being humble, always coming back to humility. Mm-hmm. Now I've, I've heard you mention before, uh, that in your work as a headmaster in the past, you found that the rule of St. Benedict was very helpful um, can you, so let's, let's sort of draw into some specific, um, for lack of a better term applications, or at least some things to think about. Um, so you, you tried to, um, at least, uh, think through how to apply the, the rule as a headmaster. And then most of our audience are classical school teachers or, uh, homeschooling parents. So, um, Talk to us about that. What what lessons do you think are important for um, for educators, whatever their context? Uh, what can they take from the life and work of Saint Benedict? Well, uh, in the rule, there's something for everybody, and uh, of course, in the rule, you have an interesting. Nowadays, we call it a kind of a matrix organization with a head. So it's sort of a combination of a hierarchical organization and a rather flat 
horizontal organization because uh, the abbot is definitely the head. And the whole section early on in the rule, he describes the characteristics of the abbot and the responsibilities of the abbot. And he puts those really before anybody else's duties or characteristics. And those are by far the most serious and the most onerous. I mean, he says in one place, um, the abbot shouldn't be the person who's just the highest ranking person, whoever that is. It's the person who's, who's, who is wise and who's, who is virtuous, who, is, who shows the most virtue in the community. That's the person who gets elected, the abbot. So in my case, of course, as a headmaster, that section on the abbot was the one that was most interesting to me. You know, what are my responsibilities as the head of the school? Um, I had, uh, in, in uh, one of the schools that I headed, I asked the, an art teacher to, who had wonderful calligraphy to pro, write a plaque for me, and I put it over the door of my office as I went out. It was over the top of the door. And it was the quote from St. Bernard of Cluny. It was, it said, uh, notice all things, reprove some things, cherish the brethren. And I think mm-hmm. this, it's very Benedictine to me in its tone. I mean, you notice everything. You, you have to be attentive to be a good head of school. You have to be aware of what's happening in every classroom, that every child is safe, that every teacher is nurturing the children and is, is um, you know, if you're a classical Christian school, that they're continuing their own education and that they have a really good grasp of the gospel of Jesus Christ and are very creative and orthodox in the way they're applying it in their teaching. I mean, you, you, know, you have to notice all things, everything that's going on, even the litter on the sidewalk, you know, you notice it all. You reprove some, some things. You're not... You're not, you're not there to be Mr. Gotcha and try to sort of correct everybody's life. Uh, you understand, as the abbot has to do in Benedict's rule, that we all have our own gifts, that none of us is perfect, and that we will all stumble along the path. Uh, the abbot's job, the head's job, is to you know support people along the path, pick them up when they fall, encourage them, love them. But at the same time, you have to also reprove those who are leading others astray or who are, are are doing things which they shouldn't be doing. And you can't back away from that. That's your responsibility. You are the person who has to uh, administer those, those reproofs. But overall, your job, no matter who you're dealing with, is to show them respect and cherish them. You know, some heads are so much better than others at doing this. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I've always struggled with uh, being able to convey a spirit of, of tender love and support to everybody in the community. I'm uh, pretty good at reproving, I think, but not, not so good at showing <laughs> that kind of support. I have, I've known others, though, who just had such a gift for doing that. I would imagine that that's the gift that Benedict had. And that's why his, that's why he attracted so many people to his monasteries. And that's why he had such, you know, that's why he was a saint. That's why he had such a loyal following. But that whole idea of cherishing the brethren, it can't be being said. Right. And, and even to this day, 
the question that we discussed with uh, the ideas of Benedict kind of coming back into conversation, they're they're still attractive to us, right? They still um, they still resonate with us. We want that kind of um, that kind of community, um, as you said, even even though it's a bit harder for us moderns to to live in community together because we're so individualistic. There's still that sense of longing for it, I think, in in just about all of us. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I mean, I, I used to say it in slightly different terms, but, you know, it uh, everybody wants to be a leader. Hmm. But a leader can only succeed if, if people are good followers. Mm-hmm. And what we often lack in schools isn't good leaders, but people who are, are willing to follow and understand what it means to be a good follower, you know, to, to be consultative, to be supportive, to, you know, praise publicly, but criticize privately, not to do backbiting, not to say unkind things to others, uh, not to be willful and want your own way. I mean, that's the big, I think the hardest thing about reading the rule of Benedict, if you're ahead of school is that, uh, it's it's very difficult in again in our current condition present conditions to stand in front of your faculty and read uh, read to them what is expected of the brothers in a monastery because mm-hmm. they will look at you and say you think I'm going to give submissive obedience to you you think that when you speak I'm supposed to take these, these words as if they're coming from Christ. Uh, I mean, it sounds for the head of school to even suggest such a thing sounds so arrogant and overblown. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is that, you know, our teachers, they come out of a culture where, uh, they're, they're like those first few monks that we talked about that Benedict had, right? You know, they'll support you as long as you are, uh, either, uh, you know, advancing their careers or, uh, because for many of them, much of the school is about them. It's not even about the students and it's, you know, how, how happy am I in this environment? How Mm -hmm. is my career being advanced in this environment? Is this environment going in the direction I think it should go in? So everybody's got an own, their own idea about what should be happening in the school and it becomes really not, not difficult, but impossible to lead a school like that. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, that's why, you know, a few years ago, Peter, a friend of mine, Peter Counts and I, after we spent some time at the mother house in Latrobe, uh, the Benedictine mother house and met with the abbot there, it was a wonderful experience. And then we offered, uh, at the college of preachers in Washington, uh, this workshop for independent school heads of school and others in the school. And it was, it was very interesting. Uh, of course, the only people who came to it are probably the people who are willing to listen and read the rule of Benedict and, and seriously consider it. But it was, I think, generally, gen, generally felt by those who attended that uh, the rule, as beautiful as it was, was simply, uh, it, it, was in, we, we, it was incapable of being applied to independent schools. Hmm. Because of this reason of unwillingness to to follow, well, and, and willfulness, you know, I mean, yeah. of course, the thing is, is that when you talk about Benedict, you know, independent schools generally, 
you're not even speaking out of a Christian tradition, really. You know, it's, right. it's, uh, and in the case of Benedict, I mean, there really was a sense that, uh, an abbot could stand in the place of, of Christ. I mean, in my tradition, the Orthodox tradition, the priest stands in that place. I mean, you ask to be blessed by him when you meet him, you kiss his hand. It's not him. It's more like, well, I was in the Navy, you know, naval officers get saluted, but you're always told you're not saluting the man, you're saluting his uniform. You know, you're showing respect to the fact, you know, you're, you're an enlisted guy. And if when just an ensign walks by, you, who's got only one stripe, you still, you still owe him a salute because you owe the, the uniform he's wearing a salute. He is in a superior position to you. And in some sense, he represents the United States Navy and the United States of America. And that's what you're saluting. Well, in the same way, of course, in a in a church or in a in a uh, monastery, the person who is anointed to lead uh, is the person who is standing in the place of Christ and should be obeyed. But even in the rule of Benedict, I mean, he makes provision. Remember, for what happens when when the abbot turns out to be a bad guy. It's not like it's not like he, he thinks that could never happen. And right. Of course, when that happens, he says, you know, the bishop has to get involved, uh, and then presumably too, the monks themselves they elect their abbots, so they they also have a hand. There were several times in my schools that I genuinely wished I could just go to the faculty and say, you know, clearly you're not happen, you're not willing to follow me on this. Let's have an election. <laughs> you elect someone who you are willing to follow, and let's follow that person. Uh, of course, that's not how schools are organized. It's usually the board of trustees that does that. Right. That also happens. You know, I've, it, I've gone to boards and asked for a vote of confidence. You know, am I, am I going in the direction that you want to take this school in, or am I not? And if not, I, I need to find another place. Hmm. Well, and and it does bring to light that principle. It's really hard for us to remember that that a, a promise to obey. Well, I mean, we could use the term vow. Obviously, in a monastery setting, it would be a vow. Um, but a promise to obey um, is is one thing. Um, but actual obedience, when there's disagreement or conflict, is an is a, a another matter entirely. Right? Yeah. Um, well, and that's that's where the the vow, a vow to obedience, um, is, is fine. Uh, but obedience isn't needed until there's disagreement, right? Until there's conflict or tension of some kind. Yeah, that's right. And then you have to make a very, you know, a really important gut checking decision. You know, I don't, in my career, I was the head of schools for 30 years. I, I didn't want to do that anymore. And I finally found a job where I, because I didn't want to be the CEO anymore. I finally found a job with a company based in Chicago where I could be the chief academic officer reporting to a CEO. Hmm. I loved that job. And, and I think, in fact, I just had a conversation, I've retired from it now, but that, that person still just called me a few hours ago, actually, to talk about something. I was, I think I made a great follower of his, even though we disagreed on a lot of stuff but only he knew about it. I mean, we'd have our, our Monday morning 
you know, C-suite meeting, there'd be four or five of us in the meeting. We'd talk about the direction of the company. And I had no problem in that meeting, you know, arguing with Mac or disagreeing with him. But I, I was, I, you know, I was there from the beginning of the company to the very end of the company when we sold it. I mean, I was never, I was never disloyal to him. I always supported him outside of that particular room. And I supported his decisions, even the ones I didn't agree with. Because to me, that's what my role was to disagree with him. Uh, in private fact, we walked, I remember one Monday morning, we walked at the meeting and Mac would, you know, put his arm around me or walking down the hall and he said, Hicks, why do you always argue with me? And uh, I looked at him and I said, Mac, if I always agreed with you, you wouldn't need me around. Why are you paying me all this money just to agree with you? And he was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> but that's the kind of, uh, you know, that's what, that's what I always looked for in schools. I wanted people who would be really open with me. And if they thought I was making a mistake or doing the wrong thing, I would hear from them about it right away. And they, we, we could talk about it. But I, I, I never, those are people I know, you know, that's how it had to come to me. But so often what happened is they wouldn't have the courage to come to me and talk to me. Instead, they talked to their friends or they talk around behind my back in some way. And then it would create this just festering mm -hmm. uh, unhappiness in the environment. And that's what, then that is what Benedict is talking about. He wants, he wants joyful monks, monks who are happy to be there. And he also sees too, and this is really true because I found it to be true when I was working with Emeritus, just the process of obeying when I didn't agree, I found it very liberating and um, comforting in a way. I mean, I, mm -hmm. it, it, it was like, you know, I can do this even though I don't really agree with this, but this is my leader. I've got to trust him and I've got to give him the same support I would want him to give me if I were leading and he didn't agree in, my, in the direction I was setting. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's as simple as, you know, doing unto others, right? Right, right. Well, David, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Um, I could I could go on and, and talk with you for hours more. There's so much. I even left out some things that I really wanted to ask you about. Uh, so maybe we'll have to carve out time at another Cersei event to for the two of us to indulge in uh, this this mutual love of saint benedict and his rule but but thank you for taking your time out uh, to talk with us today thank you brian it was a pleasure it's a rich topic and i hope it goes on in many uh Cersei classrooms it's wonderful i hope so as well planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.